a hearty Happy New Year and welcome, podcast friends, to a special edition of Booth One, our adventures in the lively art of conversation, where we discuss the latest in popular culture and the arts. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski. We have a unique episode for you this week. Frequent listeners of our show will recall that we have often mentioned our rewarding experiences at Writer's Theater in nearby Glencoe, Illinois where some of the finest drama, comedy, and musical plays in Chicago are presented each and every season. Well, I had the great good fortune to sit down with the artistic director of Writers, Mr. Michael Halberstam, several weeks ago, and our discussion comprises the full length of this week's episode. Michael Halberstam trained as an actor at the University of Illinois and spent two years performing in the Stratford Festival's Young Company in Ontario, Canada, before relocating permanently to Chicago. In 1992, Michael co-founded Writers' Theatre with Marilyn Campbell in order to create an environment where the written word and the nurturing of artists would be the foundation of all their productions. Michael has been the artistic director of Writers for all of their 23 seasons, an impressive achievement, and is widely known and admired as a director and educator throughout Chicago. This year, writers will open a brand new multi-theater complex in Glencoe, a beautifully designed building at a cost of over $23 million. This ambitious and bold project will launch a new era for this marvelous collection of artists and administrators. We talked with Michael about the new facility and a wide variety of other topics. So, Michael, hello. hello. Uh, welcome to the Booth One podcast. Uh, we appreciate your taking the time out from what I'm sure is a very, very busy schedule to be with us here today. Tell us how the project is proceeding and, and what audience members can expect when they walk through the doors for the first time this coming, I believe it's this coming February 2016. That's correct. Well, actually, uh, some people will come in in February because we'll be rolling out a series of opening events, but we're open for business in terms of production uh, in the middle of March when we premiere our first production, Arcadia, by Tom Stoppard. It's proceeding beautifully. It's been a mostly uh, bump-free process. You might have um, read we had a little fire on our roof uh, about halfway through the construction process. Which We did hear about that, and we mentioned it on our podcast. It turned out to be more uh, uh, lots of smoke and, and not much fire, and fortunately zero damage to the structure as a result of um, from the fire, and uh, indeed, it didn't even set us back. So that was uh, that was really about as 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 rough of rough, rough as it's been during the process. Uh, and besides that, we've had really smooth sailing. So it's it's been actually a joyous collaboration, I will say. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Um, in terms of what people will expect, I I hope when you walk into the building, um, it will be. It will feel like writer's theater. Um, Jeannie started her design process by investigating the theater space itself, the thrust stage. This is Jeannie Gang. Jeannie Gang, forgive me. Yes, principal architect of Studio Gang. Um, And then built the building outward from the center. So, and spent a lot of time interviewing artists, 
uh, patrons, staff members, to get a sense of what we all thought made the theater defined it. And obviously, we spent a fair amount of time exchanging backwards and forwards sensibilities about uh, what the theater is, what it means, what its core is. So I really feel like um, she's actually managed to capture the essence of the theater company and the manifestation of the building. Um, so it feels like a writer's theater space. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And we're going to get to a little bit more of that about what does a writer's theater space actually feel like. I want to jump back just a, a, a bit. You mentioned that the uh, opening uh, play that you've chosen for that facility is Arcadia by Tom Stoppard, followed by a classic Sondheim musical, Company. <laughs> what was the decision-making process behind choosing those two projects? Well, also in the middle there, we're doing um, In the Jillian, which is the smaller of the two theaters. And I won't say one is a main stage and one is a studio. I, we're really just talking about larger space, smaller space with without a pejorative uh, attached to one or the other. A lot of people talk about their smaller spaces, for instance, being their experimental space and their larger spaces being their, their safe space. Um, my feeling is they're just two different scale venues for two different levels of intimacy. Right. It's not your unwanted stepchild it, that we put indeed. other shows over there. Yeah. It's just the Or the main space. stage where you do sort of your commercial sellouts so that you can do your risky work in your smaller theater, where we hopefully, all, all, all of the work that we do will be to some degree risky. And I think that's actually just a worth a small diversion, if you'll excuse me for a second, to talk about uh, revivals. There's a, there's a notion that uh, doing new work is risky and doing revivals is safe. And actually, I think when you have a revival of a play that is as well-revered and well-loved and well-known as Arcadia, actually, your stakes are just as high as with an original piece. And and ultimately, plays that have survived the test of time the way Arcadia has and undoubtedly will have done so because they carry uh, they carry deep, important, and enduring themes – uh, themes that can can reach a good number of people over a long period of time, which means that they are probably uh, dangerous plays in themselves. Um, so why do we choose these pieces? And, you know, by neither do I want to sort of push the... Um, it's funny, I always hear my marketing director in the back of my mind whenever I talk about something that's <laughs> dangerous. Well, don't come. No, sure. I mean, it's, it's also funny uh, and entertaining and witty and sparkling. Uh, but actually, I, I mean, any Stoppard play, play carries a, a certain degree of um, allowing the audience to enter into a world in which they may be confronted with uncomfortable truths over the course of an evening. Um, why this play? Well, in a nutshell, I love the idea that it, it holds a tension between past uh, and the future, or at least the present, and that the two worlds sort of combine together to make a whole in terms of how the play unfolds. And that felt thematically important uh, as we were inaugurating our new space. Yeah. We also, um, I don't want to leave out Marjorie Prime, which is playing in our bookstore sp uh, space, which is a play about authenticity and, and what is truth as, as we look into the future. What is the totality of being a human being? What makes a real person? Um, these are also good questions to be asking as we're moving forward into a new space. Um, so Arcadia and uh, Marjorie Prime being fairly difficult plays, um, they certainly, um, Arcadia celebrates language in, in the way that Tom Stoppard usually does, his, his brilliant uh, mind at work, which means that the audience has to come and lean into the play and engage and, and listen carefully if they're going to really take all the richness out of the text uh, and take some of that home with them. 
I wanted to give them a little morsel, a sort of palate cleanser in between, and we came up with this fantastic uh, world premiere collaboration with Second City, Death of a Streetcar Named Virginia Woolf. Yeah, parody. I was going to ask you about that. That was something that was developed here along with Second City. Along with Second City, yeah. That was developed in collaboration with Second City with Tim Ryder and Tim Sniffen. Um, they both created it, and now Tim Sniffen has moved the project forward and done most of the writing. And it's never had a live stage production That's in front correct. of an audience, so this That's will correct. be the very first thing. So, you know, there's a little risk there. It's it's a comedy, and I think its intent is to mostly entertain. Um, but hopefully, if, you, if you're carrying awareness of the original plays that the piece is parodying, uh, sat- satirizing, uh, I think it, it sort of manages to... to Brush grazed lightly over some of those themes, so it has enough writer's theater weight and texture to, in order to be able to give it a place in our season. And Company also has that same difficulty, that same challenge to an audience. Yeah. It's, it's not the perfect musical. It, it takes some work, actually, to, yeah. to watch Well, Sondheim, I think, is always a challenging uh, composer to engage with, even today, when you think about the fact that the piece was premiered in, I believe, 1973, 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here we are, 40, almost 50 years later, and uh, still the piece is... Uh, still the piece is challenging audiences. That's a very bold choice. I, I'm, I'm a great admirer of you and the Writers' Theater. We come and we see everything recently. We just Thank saw you. Marjorie Prime. Did you enjoy uh, it? Very, very much. Speaking of Marjorie Prime and the bookstore, Books on Vernon, which is where you first started producing when you developed this company back in 92. Yes. How is the bookstore going to fit in with your plans in the future? Are there still going to be possible productions there because i i love that space and i know a lot of people have fallen in love with that space over the years and they consider it theirs and you walk through the bookstore through this hallway and you wind up in the back and suddenly you're in some sort of magical land i was wondering if there were any future plans for that space. it's still a little bit up in the air because of course our main focus right now in terms of opening a new building and learning how to staff it which is completely an unknown quantity at this sense. We're just literally, we have lots of smart consultants and lots of very smart staff members and lots of very smart artists we're collaborating with uh, and some pretty uh, um, pretty um, impressive trustees who are giving us their perspective, but it's still completely unknown. So we think we should put our focus on trying to get our new building open and running beautifully, and then we can put our focus on whether or not we give the bookstore a future life. Sounds very wise. The other thing that we did that I think is worth noting is that the Jillian Theatre, which is the smaller of the two, also has these movable walls that can even come in and make the space even smaller. So if we want to create a production at a higher degree of intimacy to maybe replicate the bookstore experience, um, we can actually do that in our current theater. Now, intimacy has been a hallmark of writers' theater productions over the years, not just because the space at Books and Vernon was so intimate given, given its size, but you also had a reputation of of really grabbing the audience and pulling them in to the, the piece as it's happening. We recently saw uh, Michael Shannon at a, a Red Orchid Theater. Yeah, me too. Terrific. Terrific, terrific. And, yeah. and, and very, very much akin to that books on Vernon space. I mean, you're right inside the living room. It's very exciting to be so close to so much dysfunction. And yet also Brett has such a marvelously sparse sense of poetry about his writing. So you really 
um, you do have a heightened experience. He's he's writing in what seems deceptively contemporary, easy text, but actually is very very complicated and ascetically poetic. Very much so. I, it was a, it, as as far as challenging plays go, that was a challenge as well for an audience to kind of keep track of. You mentioned these movable walls in the Jillian Theater space. Mm-hmm. What other design decisions did you and your staff and your consultants and uh, Miss Gang? What other design decisions did you? come up with in order to possibly retain that kind of sense of intimacy, that that real connection between audience and actor uh, in, in the, say, the larger space? Terrific, terrific question. The smaller of the two spaces, as I said, has the ability to compress down. It's also, it's a little smaller than the former Tudor court space. It's bigger than the bookstore. So it sort of serves as a hybrid of the old two spaces. It gives all the best of what those two spaces gave and then some. The larger of the theaters, I think the acoustics play an enormous amount uh, in creating the intimacy of the space, uh, an, an enormous role in creating the intimacy of the space. We've, we have acoustic panels mounted in the ceiling. The walls are recreated from the uh, repurposed bricks from the old women's library club, and those have been designed into a beautiful pattern that serves both aesthetically and uh, acoustically. What a nice touch. Um, there, Actually, the space is not that much bigger in terms of the audience uh, than Tudor Court. We have three more rows in the center section and then two tribunes on the side, on the left and on the right, freestanding tribunes, just as in the old space. And those are only two rows higher. Uh, and yet we've managed to get 250 seats into that. Um, there's also uh, um, an opportunity to have an epic conversation by the scale of the wall and the ceilings and the height of the room, which will have a different feeling. But because it's still only a 250-seat space, when we fill that space, you will be in a grander conversation, probably with uh, slightly larger plays, but still intimately engaged. Does that make sense? It, it does, absolutely. It's it's sort of scale on an intimate level. I mean, we've, we're seating only 50 seats more than the studio, I think, at uh, Chicago Shakespeare. Um, but we're able to do uh, broader conversations than you're able to have in a studio theater. Right. Well, you've described it very eloquently. It's going to be tough to really visualize until you actually get into that space. That's correct. One, two, or three times and see what but we also brought some. We brought some of our understudies over from Marjorie Prime the other day and we played oh. around in the space and I had them walk around and do scenes from the play and uh, turn with their back to us and move as far away from them as they possibly could and we all sat around the theater in the back row and tested the acoustics because, of course, how words hit your ear in a space um, has a lot to do with how you're receiving the intent of the play. If you hear actors acting with a capital capital A because the acoustics are so tough that the actors have to push vocally to be able to project to the back of the house, um, that stops sounding natural. But actually, we found that an actor can talk about at the level that I'm talking to you right now and still be heard with perfect clarity in the back row. Have you tried any live music in that space yet? No, not yet, but that'll... We, we actually... No, that's not true. Um, Tyrone Phillips, my new assistant... Uh, artistic director, who's the artistic director also of the Definition Theatre Company, um, when we were doing our acoustic testing, came in and sang a couple of songs for us. And it was thrilling, actually, how music sounds in the space. Wow. First of all, he has a beautiful voice, which none of us had heard before. But second of all, it was very reassuring to hear how well vocals are going to carry in the space. Wow. I think, you know, company company is, is a, something else that just occurred to me. One of the reasons that company, I think, makes an interesting choice for thematically for the season is because it's about making a commitment. And the fear of making a commitment and how... 
uh, when you're in a relationship, you're in that sort of push me, pull me relationship, push, push me, pull me tension between wanting to commit, wanting to pull back, wanting to be free and wanting to be uh, connected. And I think as we move into our new space and our new relationship with our audience and our new relationship with the village, everybody will be feeling a sort of uh, a little bit of a sense of that. So I think there's a, there's a nice anthropomorphization that's going on throughout the season uh, of some of the thematics of these plays in terms of how they relate to our overall mission. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here for sure. a question and, and, and see where we go with this. Now, you are the first generation son of immigrants from Europe in the 1930s. Am I correct about that? Uh, almost. Uh, my father came over from uh, Czechoslovakia mm. as part of the kinder transport program, mm -hmm. but my mother is uh, Newcastle, Scots, English. Um, she died in a car accident when I was five and my father remarried. Uh, and my uh, stepmother, who did the bulk of raising us, um, is still living in Champaign. And, and you were you were born in the UK, correct? That's correct. Uh, and eventually you moved to Illinois when your father took up a position for heading up the math department at the University of Illinois right here in Champaign. That's correct. Um, Urbana, I guess. What effect – this is going to venture a little off the beaten track of your theater life. But what effect has the recent dialogue – slash debate slash controversy on immigration, both from our mm. southern borders and from the Middle East. What has it had on you? And, and maybe getting back to your theatrical base here, are you looking actively at programming future pieces or ideas or opportunities that might address these issues in a theatrical aspect? Well, I think, I think it's important to, to bear in mind that there isn't really a debate. There's truth and there's lies. Uh, and a lot of the lies that are being spread right now by people who should know better have to do with the state of how people enter into this country. Um, I heard on NPR the other day that there is something like a, a first interview with immigration and the CIA and then 26 checkups that happen, then a year later, a second interview. It can take up to two or three years before somebody gets in. The likelihood of anybody with a questionable background getting into the United States is almost zero. So, you know, it's a humanitarian cause that now, if you want to take a step back and sort of ask about whether or not we should be letting in immigrants at all when we have people in our own streets who are, are hungry and in need of house, that is a, uh, that is a different question. Uh, and not necessarily the one that's being talked about in the media. So I, I try to avoid the pop cultural debates that happen between opposing ideologies because um, the conversation gets warped at some point into what plays, what will sell commercial advertising on television and rarely has anything substantive to, to say to us in terms of deeper understanding of the human condition. I mean, basically what we're looking at here is, is this sort of ongoing manifestation of racism in the media through fear mongering. And I, I, so I, am I focusing on racism? You bet I'm focusing on racism right now in terms of how I'm looking at the future of the organization. Um, I want the organization to tackle these kinds of subjects. I mean, we, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the theater right now. I'm sure that is an outside term as well. Um, I want it to happen organically. 
and integrally. So I don't just make decisions and start trying to plaster them on top of the company uh, in an effort to seem PC and answer the question of the moment. I'm really trying to incorporate those questions into the framework of the mission statement of every member of this company, every artist and uh, every staff member. Um, and, and I think you'll see when we come to announcing our 16-17 season that our programming is definitely progressing along that conversation in order to deepen it uh, rather than giving away to the, the facile way it gets dis discussed in the media, which again, these people aren't trying to, th those folks on television aren't trying to have serious conversations. John Stewart did a, a rail on um, these guys. He went on their show and he basically said, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And I think people who perpetuate this conversation ought to be ashamed of themselves. There's a much more important conversation to be had underneath the one that they're having. Well, but they're, 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 so, this is this is news. This isn't news. This is entertainment, and I I I think so. So there are my opinions, right? Which I also have to separate from my association with the organization. There's a little bit of a, a sort of a thin line that exists between Michael Haberstam's opinion and the artistic director of Writers Theatre's opinion. Where it starts to show in the artistic director and the programming work is that what I'm what I'm hoping to do with the programming that I'm trying to manifest on the stage is ask questions. Because um, I think if you meet anybody who tells you that they have answers, um, within a short amount of time, they're probably going to ask you a, to a check and join whatever religious order that they've placed themselves at the head, at, head of. Because there are no answers, no easy answers at least. There are only gray questions. And I think as long as we embrace that as, as, a, um, as a species, there's hope. As soon as we start looking for black and white answers, I think we start having endpoints and we start to devolve. Who has had the greatest influence on you in a professional aspect in your life? Gosh, you know, it's a changing conversation. It depends on the day and, and the moment. I mean, in terms of my early growth, there was an actor up at Stratford called Nicholas Pennell, another actor called John Franklin Robbins. Both these these men were profoundly influential in terms of the kind of questions that they, they forced me to ask about how you look after actors, how you investigate text, what kind of environment you need to create for artists. There was a theater company in New York that existed for 17 years before ours called uh, the Writers Theater. Marilyn Campbell, Tom Fontana, and Linda Londra, uh, and David Londra were foundational mainstays of those organizations. You know, Tom went on to uh, create Oz, which completely changed television as we see it. And Linda sat down with me in the early days and talked about creating a nurturing atmosphere and the kind of um, individual treatment that you can give to an actor that will make such a difference in the long run. So, you know, these are the, there's a diversity of perspective I've had over the years in terms of influences. Today, uh, you know, the probably the piece that's most on my mind is, is Hamilton. I mean, I, I think it's just mm. such a mind-blowingly clever piece of theater. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that now in my imagination, the founding fathers of the United States of America are black and Latino um, is is such a gorgeous piece of subversion, along with the fact that it's an astonishing piece of theater, musically brilliant, lyrically brilliant. Uh, and so I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around all the leaps of imagination uh, that were made by this extraordinary artist um, and and how I can allow them to influence me. And then... Uh, a few weeks later, I saw A View from the Bridge on Broadway, which um, also completely um, blew my mind in terms of how it managed to treat a contemporary play with a thoroughly conceptual 
uh, thoroughly conceptual idea, uh, realization in production, and yet you hear the play with such clarity. So you you know it's like David David Cromer. I think it was really uh, David Cromer, Scott Parkinson, Kate Buckley, Bob Scoggin, foundational um, artists in terms of the development of the theater company. David particularly in terms of how he views a play and and what kind of ideals we 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 put into. Um, uh, what we think theater can do and how we think acting should take place on stage. It's a conversation I've certainly furthered with Ron Parson and Kimberly Senior and Bill Brown, all of whom have been uh, um, fundamentally important to the development of the organization. Uh, I'm sure there's some overlap in this next question, but how about personally? Who have been your personal greatest influences in your life? Uh, did you have uh, teachers in college or high school, um, family members? Yes. I mean, it's an interesting question. From a personal perspective, I've had – there is overlap. I would say almost everybody that I mentioned, I've also engaged in conversations about art as well as um, person. Well, they're very close. You know, you can't – one doesn't exist without the other. You can't separate the one from the other. Exactly. No. You know, Marilyn Campbell and I in the early days of the theater company, the co-founder, had many, many conversations about what we consider truth to be and literature to be. I spent many, many nights with Gary Griffin when he used to live uh, more consistently in town. We're still very, very close and, and good friends and collaborators. You know, good friends ask challenging questions. You mentioned earlier Tyrone and the theater company that he is artistic director of Definition That's Theater, uh, which is fairly new. Um, yes, I believe that they've had the their first season, yep. full season this year. You uh, you directed for them. That's uh, correct. A Doll's House, I correct. I was lucky enough to collaborate with them. <laughs> lucky I think I followed some of your postings on Facebook. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to see that production. It, it was terrific. We we had a wonderful time, and in our we did it actually was so successful um, – I Calter invited us to come and be part of Theater on the Lake, and we sold out every. We did a two-week run, which they don't usually do for Theater on the Lake, and it sold out every performance. Tell us a little bit more about Definition Theater. I, I met a group of actors, so every once in a while, I, I love to teach. My father was a teacher; it's in my blood. Uh, my father's father's fathers were rabbis. My both my stepmother and my mother were teachers, so it's part of our family conversation. My sisters, two of my sisters are teachers, and another is now a psychologist at the University of Nottingham. So it's really part of our our family's DNA, I think. So I was down at the University of Illinois Champaign, which is I where I also went to school, got my BFA. Um, doing a master class for a couple of days in audition technique um, and then just a sort of general Q&A about life in the, in the theater in, the United, in um, uh, Chicago and in the United States in general. And this uh, group of actors um, were, had already decided to start a theater company and when they moved up to town, um, they got in touch with me and asked me if I'd advise them because I'd spent a little bit of time talking with them. It was a diverse group of actors and they wanted to create a diverse conversation and hopefully open up opportunities that were not necessarily, had not traditionally been available to them so that they could shift people's imagination. And that sounded to me like the conversation I was having right now. And I figure if you don't, particularly when you're in the process of opening and institutionalizing a mission, to get in touch with an organization that is on the cusp of some of the most important conversations that we could, we're having as a as an art form right now, and to try and engage in them on, in a profoundly personal level, seemed to me a way to keep the work that we're doing here up at Writers honest, while helping another theater company um, emerge. 
So it was a, a perfect fusion. I think it's a lot of people helped me in the early days, um, were answering telephone calls, would sit down and have meetings with me. Martha Levy, um, David Hawkinson, uh, Barbara and Chris. Um, I would get together with them and ask them questions. How did you get from this stage to this stage when you were in the process of growing your organizations? Yeah, you were speaking of Barbara Gaines and, and Chris yes, Henderson. Forgive from, me, from, from Chicago, Chicago Shakespeare. Shakespeare yes. and, and even Jeff Ortman back in the day up at Wisdom Bridge when I was ah, first starting mm -hmm. the theater company was mm -hmm. immensely helpful. Uh, uh, so I think it's part of our responsibility to sit down and just check in with our next generation, offer, receive no shared knowledge, receive knowledge, pass it on to another generation. N Nicholas Pennell, who was one of my earliest teachers, could trace his lineage of education right back to Shakespeare and his acting company. And so a lot of the information that he's passed on to me is 400 years old and growing. So if I get to pass that on to a whole new uh, artistic circle, people who will shape it and turn that information into something that makes sense to them, that's furthering this conversation. Mm. You know, back in the day, we used to have guilds, and you'd be an apprentice member of a guild, and you'd get assigned to somebody who would hopefully help you grow. I, I'm glad we don't have that hierarchy today, because that's, that's awfully patriarchal. I think there are better ways to look at the world than, than linearly and uh, hierarchically. Um, in fact, if we did less of that, I think we'd probably be a happier world. Uh, onwards and upwards with uh, feminism, please. Um, let's balance the patriarchy. Uh, and I am certainly a recipient of all the benefits of uh, that come from um, both white privilege and, and male privilege. And so I'm now doubly aware these days, uh, having had my consciousness raised about the responsibility that I have to shift thinking and grow and shape when I can and make sure I include a wider conversation. We does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. We spoke a bit about your founding, co-founding, I should say, of this company uh, back in 1992. And you took the chance of founding a theater company based on writing and acting <laughs> primarily as, yes. your, as your two main focuses. Up here in the far north suburbs, <laughs> outside of Chicago, away from what the beaten track, uh, I, I would say, maybe not quite as much any longer. <laughs> well, it's um, not the Arctic. No, nah, not quite. Um, you can see the Arctic from here, though, <laughs> especially from the top of your theater. Yeah. Uh, but quite a challenge to do that kind of thing back in 1992. It, 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 I, of course, it always takes some guts and a lot of saying just yes and moving forward to start any kind of business much less a theater company. How do you think these young folks with definition theater, what what different challenges in 2015 do you think they face that maybe you didn't face or vice versa in 1992? What's different about, hey, we, let's start a theater company? We had a different economy. I mean, I think in, in Chicago back in the day, it was easy. You could find a space for a $10 rental a night and that just doesn't exist anymore. So I think it's a much more brutal economy for young theater companies to manage in. On the other hand, it's also a more sophisticated scene. So that means the bar has been raised. And to some degree, um, that young theater companies, there are still, I think, 240, 300 theaters emerging at any point in time over the course of a, a two or three month period in Chicago history, in Chicago theater uh, evolution. So I, I think you just have to be a lot, you have to work a lot harder and be a lot better than you used to have to be. You know, we were unique. We didn't have to play a lot of the games that the city theaters have to play. Uh, it, it, 
it was all by accident that I ended up in Glencoe. And and Glencoe isn't that remote, by the way. It's, no, no, it's, it's not. It's faster for me to get to Glencoe in my car than it is from my home in Rogers Park yeah, than it is for, for me to for drive our to listeners, I, I was and, making a joke. It's not that far. And it's a beautiful, beautiful and an, community. An easy train ride. Um, quiet, tasteful. But I think it. I I just think the bar is higher and the economics are harder. Um, but because the bar is higher and the economics are harder, in a way, the th- some of the theater companies that are emergent right now are hungrier, more vibrant, uh, and maybe even a little bit more dangerous hmm. in the kind of work that they're trying to put on. And theater should. L- let me sort of explain this word danger, by the way, yeah. because I don't want people to think that you know a dangerous theater company means that your your life is in your hands. I think there's a difference between work that we do that is strictly to entertain and work that we do that hopefully provokes and makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Chekhov, I think, said you can only make a person change when you help them see themselves as they really are. And I I remember somebody even coming up to me and telling me that they weren't crazy about our production of Seagull. And I said, why? They said, well, because I just don't like to look in the mirror that deeply. And (laughs) I think that's actually why people sometimes have a hard time going to see Chekhov, because the the ambiguity that he forces into the conversation, the amount of work that he makes an audience do over the course of an evening of play is not necessarily always a joyous experience the way you you might, say, get from um, a super production of... um, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, um, a terrific play. Did you find this to be true with uh, A View from the Bridge that you just saw? That it, it, you, oh my you gosh, really yes. had to – it was one of those pieces that well, the audience, you, you could really have heard a pin drop it. in the – I'd never heard a Broadway theater so silent. There wasn't a single candy unwrapped. No cell phones went off. You could, it was almost as if we were breathing as one as we leaned into the play. Were you sitting on stage? Or? I was, yeah. I hear that's the best place to that's be. That's what I heard too. And so I, 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 I put in a special request to see if I could get that. But that's lucky. what you're talking about when you're speaking about a sense of dangerous theater. Yeah, because it's, you know, we're, we're – theater is a, is a sort of psychological place to come and meditate on the nature of who you are and what you do and the choices that you make. And um, again, we don't want to answer any questions or tell you what you are or why you, what you are not. Theater is innately political, but it should not espouse political views. Um, human views, humanist views, rights, it can espouse human rights. But I think as soon as it takes a sort of a one side or the other, then it's basically cut off a portion of its audience. I was at a play where somebody, I saw a minister testifying and somebody in the audience shouted out amen. And about two, two minutes later, the minister was given his comeuppance uh, and the audience cheered and applauded when that happened. And I suddenly thought that person who had shouted out their amen to the testifying now must be feeling awfully disenfranchised. Uh, and I think because the theater, the, the play was making a statement against religion. And, I, you know, I, who am I to say what religion is or shouldn't be? It's, it's not necessarily for me, but I know some people for whom it's, it's been a lifeline. It's a deeply important thing. It's, so it's not my job to do a play where I say religion is bad. It's my job to do uh, – my, one of my favorite experiences at Writers Theater was a play we did uh, about six or seven years ago called Hesperia by Randall Coburn, directed by Stuart Carden. It's a beautiful production, very complicated play about um, porn stars who had uh, quit their um, pornography uh, work and moved into Born Again Christian trying to have a 
reclaim their lives. This is actually a phenomenon. You can read about this. That is like a top 10 list of former porn stars who have converted to uh, Pentecostal Christianity. Really? And my favorite moment was like second or third preview, a lady came up to me and she said, I'm an atheist and I'm so glad you did this production. And all of her friends went, yes, thank you. Thank you. And they all left. And then two minutes later, a lady came out. She said, I'm a born again Christian. I'm so grateful for this production. Thank you. Thank you so much. You couldn't ask for two more diametrically opposed conversations, both people were able to find themselves and some of the questions that they were asking in our play, and it was of value to them. That, to me, is the is the embodiment of great theater. You didn't have any porn stars come out and say, thank you for doing this play, <laughs> did you? Not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ministers, you mentioned ministers. You've done some original musicals here at Writers in recent years, A Minister's Wife being one, one of them. Very uh, nice segue. And you also uh, did uh, recently... Um, a show called Days Like These. Uh, Days Like Today. Days Like Today. I I beg your pardon. Days Like Today, written by uh, our friend uh, Laurie Eason. Um, Now that you'll have this state-of-the-art equipped space, this, as you've mentioned, this toolbox, this gem over here that you can uh, work in, Mm -hmm. that you can work things in and around, is this... Is this something that you'd like to do more of? Um, have audiences responded well to being presented with new and original musical works by writers? Oh, yes. Days Like Today and A Minister's Wife are two of our most successful productions to date, in, in no small part because of the creative team. Um, fine lyrics, fine music, fine book, uh, the perfect combination. Uh, I mean, and I don't think that's always the case, but we've developed the, the, when you see new musical, it's sometimes you're like, well, the songs were great, but I don't like the book, or the lyrics just seem so flat. It's making a musical is actually probably harder than building a theater. It, there are so many moving parts. There are so many different egos that you you want to be able to keep engaged. And again, by egos, I don't mean that I have artists roaming around the room demanding um, top billing and, and behaving like divas. I'm just talking about the fact that any good artist brings a strong perspective to the table and you need to make sure that you uh, help create a unity a single voice at the same time that you're allowing those individual artists, artistic voices to flourish. So it's it's a really thrilling, thrilling process of collaboration because when it really, really works, when you get all those artists together thinking and breathing in the same direction and you have a successful outing, there's nothing more exciting. Do you have any of these kinds of things in the hopper? In the, we have on prob- the back burner. We have about three or four projects that are actually in process. We have three commissions underway, uh, and a possible fourth. They just take a long time, so you have they to be do. very, very, very patient. A long gestation period. And I get a, I get a lot of people who bring musicals to me, and they they always you know it often comes with well we've got this great musical. Hear the songs. The composer's dead, but I think we can just, you know, rewrite the book around the songs. And of course, that actually never ha- never works, because a song emerges out of text and then back into text again, for which you need uh, a simpatico relationship between your creative team, so that organically the one feels seamless to the other. And those are the most successful musicals. So even when we've delved into like the classic. Uh, American musical theater canon, we've done something like uh, She Loves Me. Um, I have audience members who've come up and told me, you know, I don't really like musicals, but I really loved this one. And my feeling is it's because they didn't 
notice that sort of artificiality that you sometimes feel when you're in a musical when suddenly the action stops, the person turns to the audience and starts singing and it feels false somehow. If it's been carefully manipulated, it should by the by the full team, it should just feel like the most natural and effervescent thing in the world. And then hopefully the audience's soul takes flight when suddenly the mundanity of of speech elevates into the extraordinary expressive nature of music. That's in I, in an ideal world, in an ideal situation, that's exactly what it should do. Do you miss acting? Yeah. I'm actually, I'd like to get back on the stage. You think there's going to be opportunity for that? I, you know, I program for the theater first, and then I think about if there are opportunities for me to act. I don't... Do you I, ever ask visiting directors if you can audition for them? I, I, not to audition, I just cast myself. You've got to have some <laughs> privilege. Um, but I do have casual conversations with uh, our directors and sort of let them gently know I'd be interested in acting. Um, um, but I will never force myself on anybody. No, I'm kidding when I said I said before. I would never force myself on a director sure. neither would I force a vanity production into creation and it has to be the right thing it takes an enormous amount of stamina to be an actor and it takes an enormous amount of stamina to be an artistic director and I can't suddenly stop being one in order to be the other um, and I, I at this point uh, you know I think if I tried to get on the stage this season or next I'd probably have a nervous breakdown so I think which is why I was surprised when I when I read earlier this spring that you were directing uh, at another theater company. I thought, how, where does he find the energy or the stamina? Well, does he ever sleep? That doesn't, well, A, no, I don't. Uh, and B, I f that's an energizing experience. I mean, the, I come away from my experience, I came away from my experience with definition with so much passion and um, desire to forward a conversation. And I was so proud of the company and how it grew and shaped and, you know, Neil McNeil, who's their managing director, who just learned so much in between the first staging of the show and the second staging of the show. And Tyrone was growing both as an actor and as an artistic director uh, throughout the process. And then his relationship with Neil deepened. I mean, it was really a th just a, such a privilege to be a part of that dialogue. You spent some time at the Stratford Festival um, for <clears throat> a couple of seasons, as we mentioned earlier. What's your favorite kind of theater piece to act in or what was when you were is it classical is it shakespeare is well, it chekhov is good it, theater yeah. probably is the best but any the, good uh, theater um what defines good theater for me is when you in this can be in any kind of theater is when people on stage behave like human beings mm. i i think there's a and i know that sounds very obvious but we audiences i think are very seduced by acting that looks like uh acting so you can see the tears, you can see the sweat, you can see the actor working hard. And I think there's a degree, some, when that happens, you sometimes watch the audience sit back and go, wow, he's really crying, she's really sweating, they're really into it. <laughs> well, of course, that's exactly the opposite that you should be thinking, the integration. David Cromer once said, I heard him in an interview on NPR saying that the, the director's job is to take the play and the audience closer and closer and closer together and at the last minute get out of the way so that they can meet. That could be said of any artist. Is your, your, um, your job is to create an artistic interface through which the audience can see themselves. And if they're too busy noticing that you're crying, then you're actually now distracting them from their own lives and you're, you're having a selfish moment in order to aggrandize yourself. And we all do it. We do it as directors. We do it as actors. We do it as writers. 
others. There's a sort of self-consciousness sometimes to our work that says, look at me, aren't I clever? And our lifelong pursuit is to, is to remove that from our conversation. Now, the great challenge is that there's an enormous amount of accreditation and support and encouragement for that kind of behavior because generally speaking, awards, reviews are often focused on what can be seen. It's, it's hard to review or give an award for seamless work where, where the boundaries between reality and fiction are so um, subtle and understated that you don't actually notice that there's, there's artistry going on. And yet that is the greatest kind of art. And yet that art is rarely the kind of art that, that wins awards. Every once in a while, you have a marvelous moment where uh, an artist is rewarded for something that they did that was just so extraordinary appropriately. I think the fact that Fun Home won the Tony this year was just a, a, a perfect moment. And when Hamilton wins next year, he said, with his fingers crossed, it will be a wonderful, also a wonderful moment. And that's when, when real, real artistry, real virtuosity has been acknowledged and rewarded. Oh. We do something with our guests on the show towards the end of our interviews uh, that we've done with Kurt Elling and uh, Marguerite Fox, senior staff writer for the New York Times. And it's, it's a little game called Chat Pack. And it's, it's questions. It's sort of like a party game. But it's questions that will help us maybe find out something about you that I could never possibly think of asking or you could never possibly think of telling me. Would you mind playing a couple of uh, oh, rounds is, of it? It's um, really kind is, of fun. You this might, is uh, what... Um, What's you the name did this. with the candidates on on the Democratic? Uh, very, forum. very much so. Why don't you? Why don't you? Well, I'll just redo these. Why don't you pick a card and read that, and we'll both play along. Okay. If you had time and money, it can go on any month long summer adventure of your choice. What would you choose to do? So do I go first? If you want to think about it, I could go first. Why don't you go first? If I had a, a month long uh, time to and, do something, yeah. what would I do? A summer adventure of your choice. Uh, I think I would try to bicycle or scooter through France and Italy. Hmm. A month seems like an awfully long time. That's just <laughs> to seem like a nightmare to me. So, well, you know, the time and the money for like, you know, maybe. Some, I, to tell you the truth, my favorite thing to do in terms of relaxation is a beach and some trashy science fiction or fiction I, I, I often people come up to me and ask me what's the did you see this fantastic movie it's subtitles it's so painful um i'm like no no i didn't because i spend my whole day doing that so the last thing i want to do when i come home is watch a painful subtitled movie i i want to watch uh, a 3d movie in which large people manned robots uh, beat dinosaurs up from other dimensions that to me pacific rim uh, <laughs> it, it, transformers is, is, star wars is, well I, i'll give a pass on transformers <laughs> okay. but star wars i'm very excited about yes i bet you're looking forward to that it, it, that to me is 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 an ideal relaxation so i do now try and get away for about a, a week um, um, two weeks is is ideal where I can just lie on a beach somewhere beautiful, where I can look at nature and, and be aware of the great wonder and majesty and awe of nature around me. And you could do that for a month? if if I don't think I could. No, I could do God. it for two weeks. Then I'd have to come back and, and if the, the second half of my holiday would have to be, you know, a week in London seeing plays or yeah. something. like, And then maybe a week in Canada seeing plays. That's that's fantastic. Or a week I, I in think New York lying someplace. on a beach somewhere is great. Want to do another one? Maybe some shopping involved in there in between two. Here, you pull another one. I do like that shoes. One looks long. 
If you could walk into any painting and actually experience the moment or scene that it depicts, which painting would you choose to enter? Uh, I'd say almost anything by Rothko. No kidding. Yeah. What's the fascination? What's it, what's in there? Well, you, what would you, you actually? What would you walk into? You almost you walk into somebody else's headspace. So they say that theater, you know, the point of art is to create empathic engagement. And I think the thing that we most lack right now, I would say at the foundation of this racism conversation that we're having right now is a complete inability of one person to empathically engage with another because they have demonized this person, made them into a monster, into something less than human. And I, when, you, when you stare at a Rothko painting, you actually, if you stare at it long enough, at least when I stare at it, I find that I start, the painting starts to shimmer a little bit after a while and almost the canvas seems to move. And all of a sudden there's this moment when you're suddenly inside his headspace and you realize that what he was painting were these emotional states of being. They were evocative of a moment in his psyche, in his emotional life. Uh, and so for a second, when you really engage in his canvases, and this is true, I assume, of all great artists, all great painters, sculptors, that you, you engage with them through the medium of their art, your truth and their truth become the same truth. Um, and art isn't universal, as we know. It just So it depends on what painter appeals to you or what sculpture appeals to you or what novel sort of draws you into mm -hmm. it. When you find somebody that, that really, really, really talks to you, having that experience of getting out of yourself and into somebody else's head and experiencing what they experience, feeling their pain, their triumph, their sorrow, their loss, their gain, their joy, um, I think if you can get out of your own mind, you can get out of your own way. Um, we could, we can function together more as a species. It's why, you know, we get asked a lot, the, there's a sort of sense, I think, in this country, because we don't value art at a governmental level, not in the way that we should, that art is somehow an elitist form, it's, and it's entertainment, and, you know, why do you guys not just charge full price for tickets, and then you wouldn't have to fundraise? Well, because we're not, we're not just making entertainment. Entertainment's great. I love the big family-friendly or not family-friendly mega-musical as much as the next person. I'm very, very happy seeing populist entertainment. I love populist entertainment. It's not the reason I go to the theater. I go to Cirque du Soleil to see beautiful young people doing astonishing things and very funny clowns, um, all wrapped up in a beautiful artistic package. But I'm not going to come out of a Cirque du Soleil show and necessarily know myself better. Uh, maybe some of the harder, darker-edged pieces, but for the most part, they just want me to sit back and relax and enjoy the show. When I go see A View from the Bridge, I want to have an empathic engagement with these people and understand people that I don't necessarily understand. You know, Brett Nevue gives articulation often to people who do not, who are inarticulate about their emotional inner lives. They have some kind of disconnect between what's going on inside them and how they're manifesting outside. Um, and so he gives you windows into the souls of people that you wouldn't normally connect with. Connor McPherson does the same thing. When you engage with their characters and suddenly you're feeling compassion for somebody that you would dismiss if you were walking down the street or if you met them in a restaurant or a bar or at a party, you've now actually fulfilled the purpose of art. And I, I think, frankly, if we don't promulgate art and make art as our main course of communication between cultures, 
we're not going to make it as a species. Art has to be our first, our first front line in communication, and, cultural and, engagement. And for you, Rothko epitomizes that. For, for me, that's, I've, I've never lost the experience that I had when I looked at his painting and suddenly entered his canvas. We were just at, the, we were just at MoMA in New York and stood in front of one of his big canvases. And it was, as you say... It's transformative. It's transformative. You're like, oh, they're across the room. It's like, oh, there's a big canvas with like these two swatches of color. And as you approach it, you begin to, well, you almost walk into the painting mm -hmm. itself. So uh, I know Fran we're getting Francis close Francis Bacon to is probably another one. And Francis Bacon, I think, just, you know, he's <laughs> clearly trying to provoke. So when you're looking at his paintings, <laughs> as yeah. with some of Goya's more... Um, grotesque pieces, which I enjoy very much. I will say a fondness for also for Michelangelo. Excellent. Yeah, those are good. Do you have time for one more? Yeah, sure. One sure. more question. As very many good. as you want. If you had the ability to compete in any Olympic event, which one would you choose to enter? Compete in any Olympic event? Yeah. Hmm. Well, no. I don't know. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if either of us Is put, yoga put a, athletics a, uh, right at the Olympic top of our event? list. Yeah, yoga, as far as I know, not yet. Golf is going to be an Olympic event um, mm, uh, next, no, I, next I, year. I like golf in the abstract. I think if I started to play it, I would become obsessed by it. I'm one of those people who, you know, if I find a game on my phone, it, it starts to consume me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, do you want my advice? Yes. Don't take it up. Yeah, it's humiliating, I, that's demeaning, degrading, and it, it will consume your life. <laughs> it's, it's, but it is it is a great game. I've been playing all my life, but it's it's very difficult. But you know, maybe the bars, the maybe like the acrobatics on the bars, that always like seemed like something fun to be, if you could do that. You mean the uneven parallel bars yeah, type like swinging thing yourself the, around those. And that, on the rings and all of that. So you'd be a gymnast. Gymnast, maybe. Well, just to I can have that, that kind of body. But then, you know, if I had that kind of discipline to have that kind of body, I'd rather be a ballet dancer. So I feel like the, there's artistry. For me, Olymp the trouble with an Olympic event is it doesn't, in, you know, it, as a non-artistic event uh, and as a, as a de by definition, an amateur pursuit, it doesn't necessarily engage me in the ways that make me happy. It's sort of almost the antithesis of the things that make me happy. I so I, I can't really answer that question. I'm sorry. Well, you, you did. A, 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 a acrobat yeah. or, a, or um, yeah, uh, not acrobat. An acrobat with gymnast. With a gymnast with pretensions to ballet. To ballet. I think because I'm an overachiever, I'd probably have to go with the decathlon, which is mm -hmm. 10 events that you have to compete in. You don't have to win any one of them. You don't have to be the best in any one. You just have to overall get a better score of the 10 than everybody else and it's it's a multi-disciplined type thing you know running javelin throwing discus high jump yeah too much jump. work well bruce jenner <laughs> famous decathlon winner maybe Indeed. the last american decathlon winner i don't know we'll have to check the facts on that with and, our producer but and no longer bruce, bruce but no longer bruce yeah. uh and it's just about time for us to uh end our uh episode here but if you do have two more minutes let's do one more sure piece. sure hopefully it'll be just a Actually, short you know one. i'm gonna go to the edge this oh, time oh that one looks long i was pulling from the middle for those of you at home without the video cam that we have here when he says that it means he's pulling a card out of a deck. What is the most interesting course you've ever taken in school? On the other hand, what is the most boring course you've ever taken in school? Um, I have cast all the boring courses out of my head, uh, and I don't really remember, uh, consequently, any of them. I also loved education, if not necessarily the educational setting. I didn't like, while I was at school, the idea of having to compete for grades. 
um, and trying to prove something with grades. I, I wanted to learn, but not necessarily be tested, if that makes sense, on what I learned, because I feel like what you learn is what you need to learn. I do understand that to some degree, it's important to see that you've tried, you've retained some information. And when you're young, you need a, a smattering of growth. But I think maybe the interesting courses, music, certainly. Um, I also took a fascinating course at the University of Illinois um, called Biology and Human Affairs, which predicted crazily uh, that in 20 or 30 years, the environment was going to start breaking down if we didn't take certain measures. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Uh, imagine uh, if that had happened. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, and then I also took um, I took an astronomy course that I loved very much. Um, I, I'd always thought because astronomy takes, I think, an act of extreme imagination to be able to take data that you uh, receive from very limited sources and then take a leap of imagination to be able to interpret it, especially when it starts moving into physics and quantum physics. Uh, the leap of imagination that Albert Einstein had to take or or Heisenberg or any of the great quantum physicists, I feel like that that seems to me a, a really worthy profession. Not the least of which because quantum physicists particularly at a certain point stop being quantum physicists and start being monks. You know, when they discover <laughs> that the universe is actually the fabric between rea reality and, and non-reality is actually a lot thinner than they thought it was they stop becoming philosophers. I see. They turn to solitude and religion. Solitude. Well, and some, you know, they, there's a belief that they're steps away from, from discovering the existence of quote unquote God, not necessarily as a um, thinking, breathing entity, but as a sort of unifying energy that holds and binds us all together that, that, that makes, um, uh, allows for uh, things like simultaneity to occur where it right. shouldn't really occur. Right. My favorite course of all of my educational years was a course called Satire that I took in college. And mostly it was my favorite because I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Mm. Dry wit, understood the essence of satire, not just from a you know, modern satirical take on it, but the classical satire take. That was awesome. And it was very complimentary to my theater training at the time. Mm. Amazingly so. I, I didn't really quite understand how they well, would combine. Satire is great because it gives you a sense of humor. It, it takes you, helps you learn not to take things too seriously, um, that even the most sacred of things that we hold dear can be parodied and satirized. Um, was one of the things I loved about uh, Death of a Streetcar Named Virginia Woolf, the ability to be able to do that piece. Uh, to uh, It's a parody, and the be, the be able to do that piece in a sort of gentle reward to our audience for the hard work that they've done so far in the season and to prepare them for the harder work ahead, uh, to help them laugh at these 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 remarkable plays that have changed our lives and meant so much to us over the years and the existence of the theater company. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I, I, I think I've been warmed up by Pilgrim's Progress to go see this um, <laughs> Death of a Streetcar Named Virginia Woolf. Well, I don't know, think there's it's, so many, so many references. There's very to, little, yes, to, to, to uh, all those great classic to Edward Albee's uh, all of them, yeah, play definitely. But I think this you'll find it'll take it in a slightly different. Kind I of sure, direction. sure, I will. Well, Michael Halberstam, thank you so much thank again you. for appearing here on Booth One. Pleasure. We appreciate your time, your viewpoints you have on theater and life and acting and directing and art in uh, in general way. Thank 
thank you so very much. Hope thank to you. see you again. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Writers Theatre Artistic Director Michael Halberstam. I want to thank the entire staff at Writers Theatre for their generosity and kindness in providing us booth one access to the inner workings of the company, and to Michael in particular for his candor, his eloquence, and time to sit and chat about this and that. Remember to sign up to our email list on our website at www.booth-one.com in order to be eligible for an upcoming drawing to win a $100 gift certificate to the Dawson Restaurant on West Grand Avenue in Chicago, a fine establishment from the folks who also own and operate The Gage and Acanto on Michigan Avenue. We'll be drawing the winning name on January 10th, so don't miss out on this great opportunity. Remember, sign up to our mailing list at www.booth-one.com to win a $100 gift card to the fabulous Dawson Restaurant. We thank you for listening and hope you'll tune in often in 2016 for more of Booth One. Until then, I'm Gary Zabinski, wishing you all the best in this new year. Take care, everyone. 